I want to invite you to turn to John chapter 10, and we are going to pick up where Eric left off last week. John chapter 10, the title of today's message is The Authority of the Good Shepherd to Save and Preserve. Now, last week we saw in this section that, you know, at first glance, it might appear to be this story about the sweet shepherd taking care of his little sheep, but uh, we, we come to discover that there's a lot more going on here, right? Jesus, when he said, I am the good shepherd, this was a declaration that he was the long-awaited Messiah who would be the ultimate shepherd that God promised to send. And in saying that, it was an indictment against the leaders of Israel who were supposed to be that, but instead of feeding and protecting the sheep, had exploited the sheep and taken advantage of them. Those who were supposed to be shepherds were actually wolves. It was a massive claim. And we can imagine the Jewish people observing this exchange between Jesus and the leaders, like looking out the corner of their eyes, biting their fists, wondering what are the leaders gonna say to this? I know this is making them so angry. How are they gonna take it? Who is this man to say these things? Who does he think he is? And it's with that tension that we come to this next encounter between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. And let's look at it together in verse 22. I want to invite you to stand as we read this, please. Let's stand together as we look at God's word. This is the authoritative, inerrant, inspired, sufficient, clear, necessary word of God. At the time the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered, them, answered him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. But because you, being a man, make yourself God. And Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do not say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you're blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. If I'm not doing the works of my father, then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I'm in the father. And again, they sought to arrest him. But he escaped from their hands, and he went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained, and many came to him. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is the word, the scripture that cannot be broken. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this word which cannot be broken stands forever. Let's pray. God. We pray that this word would arrest our hearts this morning, that you would humble us, that you would encourage us, 
that you would open our eyes to see the power and beauty that is bound up in your nature, that we would come to you, God, and be, be helped, be encouraged, be sustained, be drawn. And we pray also through the proclamation of your word that you would save the lost. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Lately, um, the Lord has been helping me to see, mostly through conflict with my wife, just how much uh, I love to be right. I love to argue a point. I love to be right. But it's more than that because being right is not enough. It, I also want the other person to acknowledge that I'm right. Maybe you can relate. And if they don't acknowledge that I was right, then I'm going to find myself fighting and arguing until they come around to see the fact that really I'm right, until they basically bow the knee to my rightness. Now, this even plays itself out sinfully um, even after I've been sufficiently proven wrong, because after I've been sufficiently proven wrong, I can still try to point out how well I would have been right under different circumstances, and hopefully you would recognize that, yes, under those circumstances, then you would be right, and that's enough acknowledgement to say, okay, see, thank you. You know, never mind the fact that these were not those circumstances, but I'm, I'm just striving in the sinfulness of my own heart to justify myself. I think of where it says, uh, forget where in the Gospels, where it says, in seeking to justify himself, he said, like, yep, that would be said about me. It's sinful. It's selfish. See, approval and recognition and acknowledgement from other people, in reality, let's call it what it really is, the desire to be worshipped by others, is an idol that will never deliver, but will always continue to demand. Do you ever find yourself that way? Do you ever look for ways to ensure that you're getting the credit, that you're justified in other people's eyes, or just wanting to look good in front of others? Well, this text this morning humbles us and it assures us. It humbles us because, as Eric reminded us last week, we are all just dumb sheep in one sense. And apart from the shepherd, we can do nothing. But it also assures us that as dumb sheep, we have a good shepherd. And he is everything to us. He's the way to the Father. He's the only door by which we can enter. He's our protector and our provider and our sustainer, our preserver. This chapter really is going to empty us of any vain self-confidence and assure us of the strong shepherd that is watching over us. So often problems and conflict in our life can be traced really to an unbiblical understanding of ourselves usually because we think more highly of ourselves than we ought, like me wanting to prove myself right because I'm thinking more highly of myself, and an unbiblical understanding of Christ. We usually think less highly of Christ than we ought. And this is a dangerous combination of two things. And if we think less of Christ than we ought, then he is not a good shepherd functionally. What he says about me is not enough, and so I have to supplement it. I have to help Jesus along by defending my own self, by justifying my own self, because what he said and declared is deficient in some way. And as we come to this section, Jesus draws some very clear lines about what he is really like, how we ought to think of him, and how we ought to think of ourselves. 
Clear lines about whose are his and who he is. Who belongs to him and what his mission is all about. What his identity is and what our identity is. So all of that could be summed up in this main point. The good shepherd has divine authority to save and preserve his sheep. And I think this section is going to press on our understanding of how and why things like some people get saved and some don't. This section addresses things like election and eternal security. Easy subjects, right? It it addresses the deity of Christ, the power of the gospel, divine sovereignty, and human responsibility. There's so much here. But I think the most important thing for us to see is that this good shepherd has divine authority as the son of God to save and rescue his sheep and preserve them to the very end. And as we'll see, no matter how much rejection he receives, there's no stopping Jesus in this mission. So point one, where it all begins, the divine initiative of the good shepherd. So by this point in the passage, verse 22, a couple of months have passed since the conversation in verses 1 to 21. The setting is the Feast of Jerusalem, the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, which is a time set aside to celebrate the heroes of the Jewish faith. And finally, some of the Jews ask him the question everyone's been wondering, are you the Christ? They're a bit frustrated because it's not that he hasn't told them before, but he hasn't told them on their terms and in the way that they wanted to be told. So their experience, they describe it as, why are you keeping us in suspense, they say. And Jesus' answer is very interesting. First, he tells them that, well, I already answered that question. But then he tells them that the real problem is not that he hasn't told them the answer to their question. The real problem is not that he has not done sufficient signs to prove that his claim was right. The real problem is not that he hasn't been clear enough. What is the real problem? The real problem, he says, is that you do not believe. He's already proven his authority. Look there at verse uh, 25. I told you already and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but the real problem there is that you do not believe, verse 26. Now, so far, so good. But the next thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth is shocking. It's kind of like, have you ever been driving down the road, uh, half asleep in the passenger seat, um, listening to music, trusting the driver, uh, half awake, half asleep, and all of a sudden, the driver just slams on his brakes, tires screeching, and he takes a very sharp turn on two wheels. If you've ever been in the truck with me, you might have experienced this. Um, And you just pop up out of this half sleep, like, what in the world is going on? You're just kind of jolted out of you know, something that was just moving right along just fine. Jesus, the next statement, it kind of has that effect on us when we really think about what he's saying. The next thing he says is like that. The conversation takes an unexpected turn. Now, the idea of sheep belonging to the shepherd has already been introduced in the chapter. And we might expect him to say that the reason you are not my sheep is because you do not believe. In one sense, that's a true statement. You can't be a sheep if you don't believe, right? But that's not what Jesus says. Just look at it more closely. He says, the reason you do not believe is because you are not my sheep. You're not among my sheep. You're not part of my fold. You're not, in, you're not part of my flock. That's why you don't believe. 
So we, we have to just think about this for a minute. This is a profound statement. Because many of us think that the way we become a sheep, surely, is by believing. And from a human perspective, that may be true. But from a divine perspective, Jesus is flipping this around. And he's saying, no, actually, you can't believe until you're a sheep, unless you're a sheep. Well, how do we become sheep, Jesus? Don't we become sheep by believing? Well, not exactly. So this is the point that Jesus has been making all along. And it's the point of God's sovereign initiative in salvation. The point was really driven home in John 3. Remember when he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again by the Spirit of God. He's telling Nicodemus, look, something's got to happen that's impossible for you to do on your own. You have to be regenerated. You have to be born again. Can a man regenerate himself? Can a man birth himself? It's ludicrous. It's completely impossible, right? But that's the nature of regeneration. It's a miracle that God does for us that we can't do for ourselves. He breathes life into our dead hearts. He resurrects our spiritual dead hearts. He awakens us. He opens our eyes. He unstops our deaf ears. And suddenly we hear the voice of the good shepherd calling us by name. And it's irresistibly attractive and seemingly out of nowhere. Like the wind that blows and we don't know where it comes from or where it's going. We we find ourselves inclined to go to him, to follow him to love him, to surrender our lives to him. That's what his sheep do. And so the sign that you're his sheep is that you recognize his voice. You've heard him calling you to himself. We saw this earlier in the chapter. In verse three, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. They've turned from sin. They've placed their faith in Jesus. This, is, this means this is a, a point that every believer This is what happens to every person who's become a believer. You've gone from just hearing a preacher or listening to a band sing songs to words that are on a screen to you're hearing the voice of the good shepherd speaking to you. There's more than what's happening through human agency. There's a spiritual work that's going on and you feel yourself being called and summoned by God. You feel something in your heart rising up and wanting to follow him. Where in the world did that come from? That's a work of grace that God does in our hearts to even make that possible. That's what he says in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they, when they hear it, they follow So where does it all start? Well, it starts with this divine initiative. The good shepherd calls. The sheep respond. And soberly, the reason people do not believe is because they are not his sheep. I realize this might be a hard thing for us to get our minds around a little bit. And I get it. We have a built-in tendency, like I talked about when I started, uh, to be self-sufficient, to want to take credit for ourselves every chance we get. But the Bible portrays salvation as a sovereign act of God that leaves no room for human boasting. No room for us to take credit. We can't can't say the reason we came to faith in Christ is because we somehow found it in ourselves to do so. The Bible doesn't allow that by the way it explains sin that affects all of mankind. The final reason why 
any of us are saved is because God first intervened and decided that we would be a sheep who would one day hear his voice and follow him. He took the divine initiative to call us by name. We don't always realize that in the moment it happens at first. It sure feels like there's a lot of faith and turning and repentance, and there is, and it's real. That does happen. But as we read more of the Bible, we come to realize that how did those things happen? How did I come to have faith in Christ? And the only explanation the Bible leaves us with is because God has so set his affection upon us and chosen to do these things in our hearts and draw us to Christ. He took the divine initiative as our good shepherd. As an old Sovereign Grace song says, dead in transgressions and sins, without God, without hope in the world, then the glorious light of your gospel broke in. The father stood up from his throne, opened his arms as he called out my name, and grace irresistible drew me and opened my eyes to see. You are the way, you are the life, you are the truth, Jesus. This is what he's promised to do. We see this promise initially in verse 16 where Jesus said, I have sheep that are not of this fold. In other words, he has people that he's gonna do this to. He's gonna call them. They're not of this Jewish fold. And, but he's gonna call them and they're gonna hear his voice and they're going to come. He's not just gonna put the offer out there and see what happens. No, he says, I must bring them also. He's going to do it. There's no ifs or maybes or hope so's. He is determined to do it. He will do it. And there is no question that those whom God has determined to be saved will be saved because Jesus promises here that he will bring them in. He's gonna do it and nothing will ultimately stand in his way. It's not just here in this chapter though. We see it in John 6, 37 where Jesus says again, all that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. They will hear, they will come, and they will never be lost. But for anyone who rejects him and dies in their sin, God is giving them soberly to think about this. God is giving them what they ultimately really wanted all along, which is to get away from God's blessing, to run as far away from it as they possibly could. After all, that's what we're saying when we reject God. In his ways. I want to do things my way. I don't want you in my face telling me what to do, God, and telling me how to live. And eventually, God's patience runs out for anyone who rejects him, and he gives them that desire of their corrupt heart. But you know what? As long as you're still alive, guess what? God has been patient with you, hasn't he? He's been patient with us in our sin of rejecting him. And no doubt he would be calling some of you even now to turn to him and believe, to hear his voice calling you today to look to him, to trust in him, to believe in him, to turn from your sin, to surrender your life to him. It's not the words of of a preacher telling you to do this. Hear the words of Jesus summoning you to to, to come and believe, to know and understand and turn to Jesus. Jesus says this to these guys in verse 37 and 38. When he calls them, hey, believe, believe. You don't believe because you're not my sheep, but that doesn't mean I'm not extending the offer. He calls them, do it, believe, turn to me. And any of us can do that today. So salvation, we see at the outset, is a sovereign act of God that leaves no room for human boasting or taking credit. Just think about it a little more. What did you 
contribute to your salvation? Was it faith? You say, well, I had faith. Yes, but where did that faith come from? Was it too a gift from God? Or was it a gift from you? Did you suddenly find the faith somewhere in your heart to do what God requires? No, the Bible's clear. The only thing I bring to my salvation were nails and a hammer. We sing the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, and there's a line in there. It was my sin that held him there. I contributed nothing positive to my salvation except the sin and rebellion that required the death of the Son of God. That's what I'm bringing to the table in this equation. There's no room for boasting in ourselves or in some measure of faith that we were able to muster up somewhere along the way. It is all His grace. And as we struggle to come to terms with that, we may wonder, well, does God intervene like this equally for everyone? And the Bible clearly says that no, he doesn't, because that would be universalism. That would mean everyone goes to heaven if God intervened in this way for every person on the planet. So who does he do that for? How does he determine who gets to be a sheep and who isn't? Well, that's what the Bible calls election. And there's a bit of a mystery here. The word election is a word that, that means that God sovereignly chooses those whom he's going to save. And he does so, guess what? Not on the basis of any good in them. Good news for all of us, right? Because he wouldn't find it if he was looking for it. Not on the basis of any good in us. Every single one of us richly deserves God's full wrath. But in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he has chosen to save some. And this reality never invalidates the very real responsibility that every human being has before God to turn and repent and believe. Again, verse 37 and 38, Jesus is appealing to them this way. Believe that you may know and understand. He calls them to this. But Jesus, note in that call, he never adapts a fatalistic mindset that just says, well, What's the point in talking about all this? You're not my sheep. You'll never be my sheep. You're not chosen and elect, so why even say anything? No, he doesn't say that. He still calls on them to believe, and he holds them responsible for their unbelief. Now, we as humans, we're not given the responsibility to determine beforehand who's a sheep and who's not. I think of the X-Men series. There was a, they can put on their, uh, this thing on their head, and, uh, and, and he can see who is an X-Men, like looking at a crowd, and these, everybody's in black and white, but these guys are in color, and you're like, oh, those are the X-Men. You know, they're all among us, and you can't see them with the natural eye. Uh, I wish we could do that with election. We can't. We, we shouldn't even try. The Bible doesn't even call us to do that. That's not our responsibility. We don't know who God's going to save. So the call for the believer is to indiscriminately give the gospel to everyone standing on this rock-solid promise that he has sheep not of this fold, and he's going to bring them in. And the way he's going to bring them in is by proclaiming the gospel. We scatter the seed. He makes it grow. We don't know who he's going to do it for, so we indiscriminately give the gospel to all. This is our confidence as we go in missions and evangelism, that as we go, as we proclaim, he brings the miracle that only he can bring about. They will hear, and they will follow. Now look also at the characteristics of these sheep, just very briefly, verses 27, first part of 28. They hear his voice. In other words, their deaf ears are opened so that they effectually hear the call of the good shepherd. And it says they're known by Jesus. 
In other words, this is not a random, open-ended offer. He knows those whom he's going to save, and he calls them by name. His salvation and his choosing to save these people is personal and particular. And next, they follow him. It's not a mental acceptance of him merely, but it's reflective of a genuine repentance. Something changes in their life. It's a change that he brings about, and they begin to follow him. They receive the gift of eternal life, again, at Christ's initiative. And finally, they're preserved by God the Father himself, and no one can touch them, which brings us to point number two. Not only do we see the divine initiative of the good shepherd, but we also see the preserving power of God through this shepherd. Now, to make point two very succinctly, anyone that God saves, God keeps. That's the main point of this point two. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Love that. Now Jesus already has declared his authority to be the shepherd that God promised to send. That shepherd we saw calls his sheep by name, summons them to follow him and they do. All along he's been alluding to his authority an authority granted to him by the Father, an authority that he exercises as the divine Son of God. But Jesus isn't exercising this authority in some rogue sort of way. No, in verse 28, he promises that they'll never perish. No one will snatch them out of his hand. But in verse 29, he says, no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand because my Father is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So the reason the Son has you in his hands to begin with is because the Father has determined before the foundation of the world to present you to Jesus as one of his sheep. This is what we read in Ephesians 1. You see it there in your notes. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That's what it means when Jesus says, My Father has given them to me. And notice the reference here to two sets of hands. No one can snatch them out of Jesus' hand. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Think about that. The power that every believer is being protected and preserved with is as powerful as the union between Jesus and his Father. It's an unbreakable bond. John Calvin wrote, in short, our salvation is certain because it is in the hand of God. Our faith is weak. Yeah, amen, right? Our faith is weak. And we are prone to waver. Stephen said it at the beginning of of the singing. Uh, It's probably not just you, brother. I mean, we're all prone to waver, no doubt about that. But God who has taken us under his protection is sufficiently powerful to scatter with his breath alone all the forces of our adversaries. For since the power of God is invincible, Christ infers that the salvation of believers is not exposed to the ungovernable passions of their enemies. Because before they perish, I love this, God must be overcome. Now, is that going to happen? Before they perish, God must be overcome because he's taken them under the protection of his hand. Well said, Calvin. Calvin means that God is basically saying, look, if you're going to get to them, you're going to have to go through me. And good luck with that. That's basically what he's saying. The father and son together are preserving and protecting the sheep with an unbreakable bond. 
That's why Jesus says his father is greater than all. Who's the all? Well, it's all that would threaten to snatch the sheep out of his hand. As one theologian describes it, it's the son that protects the sheep, but it is the father who empowers the son. The son's hand holds and empowers the sheep just as the father's hand holds and empowers the son. That's a very helpful way to say it. That's what Jesus means when he says, I and the Father are one. And sometimes we use that voice to point to the hypostatic union, the divinity of Christ, union with Christ and the Father. And yes, those things are are there. Um, But Jesus isn't suddenly changing the subject to talk about his essence and his divinity at this point. The focus is still very much on the mission of the good shepherd to rescue and preserve sheep. So for Jesus to claim that he and the Father are one, it's, it's a claim to an absolute unity of mind and purpose with God the Father himself. Yes, it was a direct claim to deity, but it wasn't limited to just a defense of his divine nature. He was pointing to this perfect unity. Jesus and the Father have this unified mission to preserve God's people, to preserve the sheep so that the enemy can't get to them. Oh, what a comfort this should be for us. This is the picture we get in Colossians 3.3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. No one can snatch him out of my hand. In God, no one can snatch him out of the Father's hand. You see that, that picture. So let's illustrate this for a moment. Kristen, can you come up and help me with this? So I have a uh, Lego minifigure. Um, not sure if this is... Lloyd or who this is. It's one of these guys. Um, this guy, this little guy represents the Christian. And my hand is going to represent Jesus. So Jesus is saying, no one can snatch them out of my hands. Jesus is holding and preserving his people. And then in verse 29, he says, and no one can snatch them out of the father's hands. Well, how is that true? So Christian is like the father's hands. And so the father's hands are preserving the son's hands. who's preserving the sheep. So you see why Calvin says, for them to get to you, God must be overcome. No one's getting through this bond. This is an unbreakable bond that Jesus forges with his people for their preservation. Amen? And this is good news. This is assurance for us as believers. Thank you. What a, what a picture of how that is with these two hands. And let's think about it. Logically, this is the necessary outcome of a salvation that is all of grace from beginning to end. It's all of grace from beginning because we saw his initiative. It's all of grace to the end because we see him preserving us all the way. But if it's ultimately up to us and we had the final say to get ourselves in, then it would logically follow that it would be up to us to keep ourselves in and that it's our sin that could get ourselves out. But you know what? If God's behind it all, his salvation is effective. Does he save halfway? Does he start something and not finish it? Does God say, I got you in, but now it's going to be up to you to keep yourself in? Like, I'll help you get the loan, but you're going to have to make monthly payments. Is that the arrangement that the Bible gives us for salvation? No. He calls the sheep. He brings them in. He gives them eternal life. And he makes sure that not one of them will be lost along the way. Now, You might be wondering, if we're eternally secure that way, then 
Are you saying it doesn't matter how we live because no matter what we do, we can never be lost and snatched out of the Father's hand? Well, time out, okay? We can't lose sight of verse 27, which gives us the sign of a true sheep. Look at it, verse 27. What is the sign of a true sheep that God preserves to the end? They follow me. People who say things like, it doesn't matter how many times I sin or if I sin because I'm going to heaven because the Bible teaches eternal security are actually given a strong indication that they are not his sheep. His sheep are never flippant about following him. They never see it as optional. They don't always do it successfully. They certainly don't do it perfectly. But they hear his voice and they love his voice. They want to follow him. They want to put to death sin in their lives. When, when sin is reigning in their lives, when they're not following him, it breaks their heart and they do everything they can to rid themselves of the things that keep them from fellowship with this good shepherd. See, true sheep have no interest in what, what we've called sloppy agape or greasy grace. Sloppy agape, well, God loves me. It doesn't matter what I'm gonna do, what I do because he's gonna love me anyway. Or greasy grace, anything slods because grace is grace and God's gonna let you get away with it. No, that's not how believers talk. Read, read John's letter, which is so much about that, First John. Um, so no, 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 that's, we can't lose sight of the fact that they follow him. So this, this section, these verses contain both a promise and a warning, which is exactly what it was for the Jews in that day. Are you a sheep or not? If not, repent and believe. Follow Jesus. And the power of God will preserve you through the good shepherd. And if you are one of his sheep, he is protecting you and preserving you. That's why Paul can say in Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, the, to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. He will preserve his people all the way to the end. So, having rooted salvation in the divine initiative of the Good Shepherd, and having assured us of the power of God to preserve us to the very end, John points to the next part of the dialogue in point number three the undeniable testimony of the Shepherd's word and works. Now, at this point, because Jesus had claimed direct equality with God the Father, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. Which is very interesting. I mean, it's crazy to me that some people today claim Jesus never actually claimed to be God. Yet here, I mean, even his enemies knew exactly what he was claiming. His enemies knew that, and they were ready to kill him over it. And so for the second time in this gospel, they're ready to stone him for blasphemy. And Jesus points them to the Old Testament scriptures in Psalm 82, we don't have time to turn there, but if you look at his exchange in verses 34 to 36, he says, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent to the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? If I'm not doing the works, the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I'm in the Father. Interesting passage, just very briefly, would take more time to really show you this and unpack this. But this is a reference to Psalm 82, where God rejects the judges of Israel. And in his rejection of them, he says, you are God's sons of the Most High, yet, for all these reasons, 
like men, you shall die. So he's telling the judges of Israel that you are like gods, small g gods, in the sense that you're occupying a divine office appointed by God himself as God's spokesmen and messengers, but you failed in that office and you're going to be judged by it. So the line of thinking, what Jesus is arguing here is he's saying, look, if, uh, if you accepted the people in the divinely appointed office that God himself calls gods, small g, and sons of the most high, and they were corrupt, how can you possibly reject someone who was sent by God and does the works of God perfectly and bears witness to this reality through signs and wonders? How can you reject him? How can you say that's blasphemy? The corrupt judges of Israel were called gods and judged for it, and you accepted them. But here I am doing the works of God and claiming to be God, and yet you call it blasphemy and you reject me? So he's really pressing the issue. Am I doing my father's works or not? If not, then don't believe me. But if I am, you need to come to terms with that. Of course, his desire is that they would believe so that they can know and understand that Jesus is the divine son of God, that the father is in him and that he is in the father, as he says in verse 38. Despite his appeal, it's to no avail. And the chapter actually closes with kingdom advancement outside of this Jewish context, which is the fulfillment of verse 16. I have sheep that are not of... This, contextually speaking, Jewish, fold. Verse 40 tells us he leaves Jerusalem and goes to where John the Baptist was baptizing, and he stayed there for a while. So here he is, picture it, outside the religious establishment, outside the Jewish fold, so to speak. And it's in this context that many were coming to him, mainly on the basis of John's testimony. In contrast to what the Jews were looking for, John did no sign, but they realized Jesus really was the Messiah because everything that John said about him has proven to be true. And so there's this undeniable testimony bound up in the words of Jesus as well as the works of Jesus. It's in this context, outside of a place where we might have expected that many believed. And isn't that often how God works? You know, you heard the, the unexpected surprise in the tone of, of Eric's voice when he was sharing the testimony about Nepal, that God loves to show up and work in places that are just so contrary to what we might have expected. And we step back and we marvel at it. So no, notice the works and the word, how they play together. Jesus calls them to believe the works in 38. They believe the words of John the Baptist when he testified that this really was Jesus' Messiah. See, that word works. They're, they're coming together. And that's the kind of church we want to be as well. We want to be a word and works kind of church. We want to proclaim God's word with clarity, and we want the claims of Jesus to land on us in a way that capture us and convict us and change us. We never want to be a people who just grow stale with intellectual truth. We want that truth to transform us, don't we? We want God to work among us, to put himself on display through us. So we need the word and the works of Jesus. We need the Bible and the Holy Spirit. We need a right understanding of what the Bible teaches about ourselves and about who Jesus is. And 
we need to be shown through scripture what actively living out what the Bible teaches looks like. This is how God builds his church. This is how he expands his kingdom. It's how the true authority and identity of Jesus get put on display. It won't be easy. Yes, it's an undeniable testimony, but even when the good shepherd put his word and works on display, let's remember he was still crucified for it. So many will not believe because they are not sheep. But like Jesus, we will never give up proclaiming this message and declaring this gospel and letting God's word and calling ring out to all ears because we know that his sheep will hear his voice and they will come because the divine shepherd is powerful to rescue and preserve his sheep. So let's bring this all together. Stephen, you can come and and close in a song. How do you think of your salvation? Just pause and think about that for a moment. How do you think of those who are yet to be saved, but that you long to be saved? Is your view maybe largely man-centered? Is there some desire in your heart to rise up and take credit? Like I'm so prone to do in relationships at home and, and in the church and with other people. This text is showing us the nature of Jesus' authority to gather a people for himself. It's showing us that in that authority, it's him who initiates and sustains and preserves all because he has the divine authority to do so. He has divine authority to save and preserve his sheep. So where do you hear his voice calling you today? Maybe he's calling you to turn from your sin to cast yourself on his mercy and to follow him. Just like he called these crowds to do, he's calling some of you to do that today. Maybe you're hearing his voice challenging you to let go of self-centered views of your salvation, to lay aside all your yeah buts and, and just fall upon his sovereign mercy as your only hope in life and death. It's a good way to collapse into his mercy. Maybe you've lived too long under the weight and pressure of keeping your Christianity afloat. That's a burdensome way to live. And it's his voice today that's calling you out to assure you of his sustaining and preserving grace. He's got you. No ultimate harm will come to you. As Calvin said, God would have to be defeated for the enemy to ultimately get to you. Now, that's not to say his attacks are not real or that we'll never be tempted. But God may want to assure some of us that inasmuch as he chose you and called you, he will keep you. We need to hear that. We need to cling to that. We need to believe that with all our heart. We need to let that motivate us to follow him because he's got us. Not follow him to get something from him. Follow him because he's got us. He's holding us in his hand. It frees us to make sacrifices for his kingdom. It frees us to lay down my desire to be right and to be recognized and to win arguments. When I recognize that he's, he's got me, it frees me from that. And I can live as in the abundant way that God has designed for me to live. See, these are truths we need. They, they will sustain us in relationships. They'll sustain us in weariness. They'll give us perspective in life. And so we need these truths. These are truths we can stake our lives on.
It's a gospel that we stand on. Amen. So let's stand and sing this together. Lord, I pray that you would help these things happen in our hearts, that you would galvanize this in us. And in, in so doing, make us more like Christ for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.